This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Uh, Tim and I just going through some of the day's virus and vaccine headlines. Keep in mind, the U.S. yesterday recorded its lowest number of new coronavirus infections since the early days of the pandemic. That's not necessarily the case, though, when you look at Taiwan and some other places, Thailand also. Uh, it's a little bit tricky. Yeah, there are a couple different things playing out here. Um, but certainly here in the United States, it is encouraging. The number of mm-hmm. new infections that we saw yesterday, the lowest that it's been in almost a year. Feels so good. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. And of course, India, we continue to focus on India. It continues to be uh, rough, but they're scaling up their inoculations uh, for its population. Let's get to it. Uh, a trusted voice that we have gone to throughout the pandemic, Alyssa Rapp, CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions, back with us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Uh, Alyssa, good to have you here. How's it going? How's your team doing? Oh, Carolyn, thanks for having me back. I'm feeling much, much more buoyant today than in mm, past yay. conversations. <laughs> we are getting We are seeing the world reopen as people get more and more vaccinated. The access to the vaccine that we've discussed so much as a major thwarting issue is no longer the case. It's in abundance available, which is awesome. And I'm feeling hopeful. Why is that specifically? I mean, is it is it because of what's happening everywhere else? Is it vaccinations? Is it the general trend that we're seeing throughout the country? Because there are still hotspots popping up. And look, there are still a lot of Americans who don't want to be vaccinated. Well, there's absolutely vaccination fear, which is a whole separate conversation per se. But why things I think are looking up, and as Carol said, the lowest number of new corona cases in in a year and a half almost is is awesome. Two key reasons. On May 13th, as you know, the CDC released new guidelines for fully vaccinated people. And when you no longer need to wear a mask uh, or physically distance in any setting when you are vaccinated, there's an extra incentive to get it done. That's a big, big life change from the last year and a half. And then on May 10th, just a few days prior, The FDA expanded the emergency authorization for Pfizer for uh, 12 to 15-year-olds. So now we've got 12 and up able to get vaccinated and more and more people getting vaccinated. So one can debate herd immunity, but we're now seeing the positive side of vaccinations, which is the world can begin reopening and unmasking, which is which is a big change. Hey, Alyssa, so we all have now a bit of a playbook, right, in terms of dealing with a pandemic. We are already having guests on, uh, smart guests like you, those in the medical community who are already talking about the booster shots and marking their calendars. How are Mm -hmm. you planning for your employees who are on the front lines uh, in the healthcare community? How are you planning for that already? We are uh, obviously following very closely state guidance and on that, in the cases like New York State, where you all are, uh, there are now mandatory days and half days off if to accommodate the vaccine. We are encouraging that, making educating our team about that, encouraging that, and letting them know there's a no there's no economic consequence of getting vaccinated or boosted. Uh, and we expect that the boosters will start to be available by the fall and hope that they're not needed, but expect that they might be. And we'll just have to continue to make those accommodations to allow people on the front lines to take time away from their workday and get paid for it in order to get the shots they need. Alyssa, one reason among the many we like to talk to you is you have this pulse of what's going on on the front lines and in, in, in the healthcare facilities uh, where you guys operate. And I'm wondering what you're hearing from, from those right now. Is the news as good as it is outside of those hospitals? So in that sense, I won't be quite as optimistic. You know, the, the, there has been access to vaccines since December on right. the front lines, and we had a, a meaningful 
uh, hesitation risk amongst frontline workers, as you heard about throughout the country, uh, about vaccinations. We have seen that ease a bit because now that the world is reopening, they and, and I don't know if we'll end up in a place of vaccine passports, but people are moving around again, including some of our field leaders. The, 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 the lone few who were not vaccinated now are saying, oh, shoot, if I'm going to be asked to travel more for work or go to other sites, I don't want to be increasing my risk and my own personal risk going back to my home of getting picking it up and bringing it back to my home when there's really no excuse now, not as we start to move around, not to get the shot. Uh, and so we've seen people who had been reluctant start getting it. We've seen people uh, who were reluctant see family members get COVID and therefore rush to get the vaccine who were reluctant. So we've seen a little bit less reluctancy on the front lines, but there is still some. And that's the piece that I, from where I sit, and that frustrates me because it's not for lack of education or open dialogue about the scientific benefits of it. In our case, we've done 10 town halls on, on, right. on the vaccine. But I'm at least encouraged that some people who had been hesitant are now getting it uh, mm. several months later as the world reopens. Hey, uh, Alyssa, there was a story that caught my attention over the weekend about COVID being airborne. Uh, scientists uh, were saying it. Now authorities think so, too. And this has to do uh, the World Health Organization, the CDC, uh, and some studies that have been done uh, by uh, scientists uh, around the globe. Basically, the point is that scientists are now calling for ventilation systems to be overhauled like public water supplies were in the 1800s after you know pipes at that point were found to uh, harbor um, cholera. So so I just wonder, are we thinking about that? Your healthcare workers, hospital systems are probably, I think, ahead on this, I would say. But I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. I just got elected to the local school board here uh, in suburban Chicago where my children go. And we have talked about that level of advanced ventilation already and already had made some of those investments last year. Uh, I haven't heard it come up yet in the hospital setting, to your point. There's already much more sensitivity to the air quality, particularly in the operating room and there were new mandates like smokeless uh, operating rooms because of smoke caused by some of the equipment, not by actual physical smoking, um, et cetera, in the last year. So I, I would expect more uh, investment required by hospitals in their infrastructure to accommodate improved ventilation settings. I would also expect it, frankly, in schools. Hey, Alyssa, before we let you go, um, best guess for how long we're, we're, we are going to this is going to be the, the go to thing we go to you on, uh, because <laughs> hope, it does feel like what a I certain for a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and we only have about 15 um, think, seconds left. I think we're probably going to continue talking like this till the end of the summer. Okay. Yeah, I think so, too. But look forward to other conversations with you. Alyssa, thanks so much. Alyssa Raps, Chief Executive Officer, Surgical Solutions, on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. I think the same thing. I think about that with... I think so, too. I mean, and I think, you know, look, Davos was canceled today. And uh, Singapore, right? Yeah, Davos, Singapore. So that's a big deal. Yeah. Well, World Economic Forum, I should say. Yeah, we're kind of watching yeah. like all of that because it gives us kind of a, a metric on where we are. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So big business deal. We uh, talked about it with Dave Wilson up at the top. Investment bankers, safe to say, probably pretty busy over this past <laughs> weekend, right? It was a deal that uh, was a Bloomberg exclusive. We announced it. Yeah, and it, of course, involves AT&T selling its media assets, Time Warner, to, well, now we're called Warner Media. It's hard to keep track because the ink was barely dry on the acquisition from just a couple of years ago with the, uh, with the AT&T's acquisition of those assets. And you go way back, I think, of AT&T getting together with TCI way back when. I mean, there's just... Don't forget it, AOL, too, in <laughs> it's between just, those. 
Where's the org chart? Uh, let's get into it uh, about this latest move that brings together assets like CNN, HBO, HGTV, and Food Network. Lucas Shaw covers uh, the media and entertainment industry. He's entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from LA. So Lucas, who wins in this deal? David Zaslav seems like the pretty clear winner. <laughs> he uh, He's the CEO of, of Discovery. He's been, as best anyone can tell, trying to sell his company for two, three, four years, really make any kind of deal with anyone because they have been a pretty clearly undersized media company. Um, and instead of trying to sell the thing, he now sits on top of, you know, what is is the third or fourth biggest entertainment company empire in the world. And, and is it enough, though, to take on Netflix and, and Disney Plus? You know... It's a tough question to answer just because it, it seems to me as though HBO Max, which is the big service that they're, that, that they're getting as part of this deal, was doing fairly well. Was it growing as quickly as, as Disney was? No. Was it, it was growing more quickly than Netflix in the U.S. from a smaller base, of course. It was on the precipice of rolling out overseas. And I think we're about to get a really good sense of sort of how this service was going to do on a global scale, which is the big question. And this deal, much like the, the AT&T Time Warner deal, could not really come at a worse time. You know, that mm. AT&T buys Time Warner just as Time Warner is preparing to kind of figure out its direct-to-consumer strategy for HBO. Instead, Time Warner sells. Then their efforts to turn HBO Max into a real thing, or what was then HBO Now, essentially get paused for two, three years. So then HBO Max debuts late after Disney Plus instead of first. And once again, right as HBO Max is about to roll out internationally, they introduce a ton more confusion. I just think it's, it's got to be very difficult if you're one of these people trying to make HBO Max a real competitor with Netflix and Disney Plus to have to go through reorganizations and layoffs multiple times in just a couple of years. Now, you said that they're now, Zaslav is now sitting on top of the third or fourth biggest empire in media empire in the world or in the U.S.? Uh, certainly in the, in the U.S. Okay. Um, I'd have to look at the exact size. Uh, and it, again, it depends a little bit on what you consider media. I would say it's one of the biggest entertainment empires. If you go into media, you know, Facebook and Google are media companies. Some of the big Chinese tech companies are media companies because they sell ads and they sell subscriptions. Right. But as a real, as a kind of a pure entertainment company, it's really Disney kind of Netflix and, and then this one. Well, and is it, Listen, it's a huge pie out there. So is it okay if you're just number three or number four? Is there enough to go around, Lucas, that makes this a pretty viable entity going forward? Or maybe not so much? Look, that's up to what, that depends on what your ambitions are. You can certainly make plenty of money being the third or fourth biggest streaming service, just like you could have made plenty of money pre-streaming being the third or fourth biggest TV network. Um, but Discovery, for example, was in a position where they weren't going to be number three or four. They were having to position themselves as a, a niche, mid-sized player. It was clear that they were never entirely comfortable with that positioning, which is why they were on the market. And I think AT&T decided that the, the capital required to invest in HBO Max to make it the number three or four player, which would be you know, $10, $15, 20000000000 billion a year, was something it just didn't want to do. Hey, but Lucas at the end of the day... Sorry, go ahead. So, no, no, please go. I, yeah, I, I think being third to Netflix and Disney is, is a pretty good position to be in. Yeah. 
Lucas, what, what is HBO's identity after this? Because it's something I've thought a lot about in the wake of the AT&T acquisition and sort of this transformation into HBO Max, because HBO years ago was this avant-garde, right? It was it was this place for documentaries. It was this place that- Cutting edge, right? It was really cutting edge. And mm-hmm. a lot of that had to do with Richard Plepler, who of course is, is no longer there. But but what is HBO's identity after this? Is it still a place for like really high quality content? And just got about 30 seconds. It, it's, it's identity is very much in flux. It was already in flux and expanding to HBO Max and bringing in lots of other types of programming. Now when you factor in all the reality that goes in, I, I don't know what the name HBO means anymore. It's something that they're going to try to define over the next several years. All right, I'm going to squeeze in another five seconds. Could somebody else come in, a Comcast or somebody, and say, wait a minute, we want these assets? Just quickly. Yeah, th- there have been a lot of rumors, and, okay. and I've heard of interest on the part of NBCU, but now the, the kind of chatter is, will they go after a Viacom CBS? I love it. Stuff and play. (laughs) Um, Lucas Shaw, thank you so much. He's entertainment reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Well, in the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, an excerpt from a new book out by Bloomberg News Projects and Investigations reporter Lauren Etter. Her book, The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation. We talked about it on Friday. Yeah, it's just a fantastic excerpt. Uh, and I'm excited to read the book as a result of reading this in Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber's editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He's joining us in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Lauren Etter, Projects and Investigations reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Joel, if we were doing this... If we were talking about this three years ago, we'd be talking about how high-flying Juul is and how they just got this huge investment from Altria. Quite a bit has changed. Yeah, I think when that happened, everyone was like, whoa, Juul, this is for real. And then, you know, a few years later, um, things have changed a little bit. What I thought was so interesting about this particular chapter that we excerpted from Lauren's book is the, the untold nature of how things began to turn against Juul. And, and Lauren, let's take it, kick it over to you. Tell me about Atherton, which is the richest town in America. And there are some very wealthy parents uh, who discovered a little bit about their kids having maybe um, some interests in, in a certain uh, tobacco product. Yes. So, so what's fascinating about this particular story and about this particular place in America is this is actually something that was happening across the country in literally every city across America. So what made this particular story resonate was because it happened to be in Atherton, but like you said, the wealthiest city in America. And the, the product Jewel was actually taking over this school, this very uh, um, renowned private school in Atherton called Sacred Heart Schools. And kids of the parents um, were getting addicted to the product. Um, they were having their peers use the product, and it was just infiltrating this community. So just like it was infiltrating communities across America, but they stepped on uh, the third rail when they basically got involved with these parents who said, we have got to do something about this. And what made this particular story even more unique was that the then CEO of Juul, uh, Kevin Burns, happened to live in Atherton. He lived five minutes away from all of these individuals who I write about. And so there was a particular fury that had developed in the community because they're like, well, wait a minute. There are people in our own community who are making money off off of this while it's invading our schools and addicting our children to one of the most highly addictive drugs that's around, which is nicotine. Well, Lauren, there's fury and then there's fury from very influential people who happen to be parents of these kids. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah. So these weren't just any, you know, any parents. These were, you know, uh, Pete Brigger, who's a very well-known um, co-CEO of Fortress Investment Group. Um, he found out about uh, his daughter's lacrosse team, who had their players on the lacrosse team who had gotten addicted to it. And that's how, how he kind of found out about the product and realized that, wow, this is something that's bigger than, you know, just, you know, a little something that the kids are doing. This was actually gripping their lives, interfering with their lives. And so he realized he needed to do something about it. At the same time, there were other parents who were involved. Dave Burke, who is a very prominent individual and um, has an investment company in, um, in the Stanford community. Um, his peer group, his, his teenage uh, kids, their peers were using Juul. And so they all kind of connected. And then Jim Steyer, who's a very well-known uh, Stanford professor, who's, who's, um, whose brother happens to be Tom Steyer, the billionaire, um, and for one-time former um, presidential candidate, they realized that their kids were also using Juul as well. So it was kind of this, it was just kind of this conflagration this, you know, that started in Atherton, but that was actually happening around the country. So this was just one kind of zeroing in on one community that had these issues that were kind of highlighted at a very high level. As you point out in your piece, Altria now values its 35% stake in Juul at $1.5 billion. That would imply a valuation below $5 billion from a peak of $38 billion, a serious decline from, from just a few years ago. How much of the issues that Juul has faced in the years since has been a result of what these parents have done, the regulatory issues, the changes in what they're allowed to sell and where they're allowed to sell it? Well, it was a it was a, a lot of things were happening at the same time. So it's not only these parents that, you know, led Jewel to where Jewel is today. I mean, there were attorneys general that were investigating. Congress was investigating the company. Um, there were, you know, plaintiff lawyers all across the country that were filing lawsuits. So it was the parents are just kind of one um, one piece of the puzzle um, that really came and put all of this pressure on Jewel. But they were a not insubstantial kind of player. Um, they tied into this other group in New York. Um, there were a group, uh, some moms there who founded an anti-vaping organization mm. called Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes. And so that has become one of the most prominent anti-vaping groups in the country, lobbying to get you know more regulations against the product. So yeah, they definitely played a part. They did not play the only part, of course. Um, it was just kind of the, this entire um, storm that hit Juul and then you know has also now um, hit Altria as well. And if we know anything about sort of big tobacco, um, the kids are sacred, right? <laughs> like in the moment that you sort of end up on uh, watching, watching, you know, the under 18 crowd um, with nicotine, um, it seems like it really sends uh, America into, into outrage, um, Lauren. But I'm also very curious You've got many other chapters in this book. We only excerpted one of them. What else do you want people to know about the book? Yes. Um, well, what I want to comment on what you said about the kids and why the kids are such an important part of this entire story. It's because in the 90s, when the tobacco industry was under fire from regulators for the first time, it was the kids that really, the, this, this realization that youth addiction, youth nicotine addiction is powering the profits of, this, of the tobacco industry. Not more than 90% of adult smokers begin smoking before they turn, the, turn 18, before they leave high school. 99% of adult smokers don't start smoking before the age of 25. Um, uh, 
or sorry, start smoking before the age of 25, which means that if you don't have kids who are addicted to nicotine, you're not going to have a next generation of smokers. So that's why public policy has always targeted youth nicotine addiction, and which is why Juul stepped on the third rail when they started getting kids addicted to nicotine. So yes, there are multiple chapters in my book. Um, it's really four interwoven stories. It's a story of um, Juul in Silicon Valley. It's a story of big tobacco and the history of the tobacco industry and sort of their desperate struggle to remain relevant in a declining industry. It's also the story of regulators struggling to, to regulate this controversial product. And then it's, of course, the story of the parents as well and the um, teens who became addicted. So there's a lot of material in there. Yes, this is just a um, very small part of the overall book. Um, and um, But there's definitely many, many issues to... Uh, talk about and nicotine is highly relevant right now because the Biden administration has um, has put out some potential policy proposals that will will further regulate nicotine in America. Well, lucky for us, you're going to come back because the book comes out next week and we're going to have you back uh, to talk some more because this is, you know, if you think about the life cycle of this, it's just happened so quickly from kind of peak to pulling back. Well, it's so the story of Silicon Valley, right? Of just like instantly make this impact. And, and because of the drug nature of this one, it seems like there's just the fallout just continues. All right. Of course, that's uh, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, And Lauren Etter, she'll be back uh, next week. Uh, next week, uh, The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel and the Addiction of a New Generation is her book. This is The Big Take, the best of Bloomberg's in-depth original reporting from around the globe. What we have to make sure we do as the economy recovers is look at the data kind of broken down a bit. These plans are becoming more and more expensive. You're looking at $15 billion for their entry level. There have been waves of immigration that have faced a lot of resistance. A lot of color behind the scenes and a great untold story. How did Bezos really come out on top? As the cover says, Jeff wins. He always seems to win. The Big Take on Bloomberg Radio. All right, it is time for the Bloomberg Big Take. And on this Monday, it's actually the big crunch. Uh, listen, we've talked about hoarding so much during the pandemic. Yeah, and it's not just customers, <laughs> American laughing. consumers. It wasn't funny when I couldn't hoarding. get toilet paper. I'm no, just going to tell you. There's nothing funny about that. <laughs> but it's also not funny when. Um, you know, large industrial companies can't get their hands on their inputs. Right. And is it just, you know, disruptions in the supply chains or is it, you know, inflationary? And what does it mean longer term, right? Expectations of disruptions. Exactly. Exactly. So let's get into it and let's get to the story with Brendan Murray. He is trade czar at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from London. This is the story, Brendan, we all needed, especially as we spent last week being concerned about inflation then not worried about inflation. And we saw that play out in the financial markets. What's going on? Why why are companies panicking? Yeah, so so inflation doesn't just show up on the on the store shelf; it builds in in the economy over months and months. And I think what we're seeing now is uh, some of those industrial inputs, uh, you know, things like chemicals and plastics and rubber and other things, you know, that normally just kind of fly under the radar, uh, you know, really causing uh, some tightness and and causing companies a lot of pain. I talked to a uh, a mattress maker who can't get any foam, who tries to get this in the U.S. And obviously, you know, mattresses without foam is, is you know, not a business that you want to be in. And so this, this particular business owner is saying, look, I can, I can get by for a couple of months, but I don't have anything in my inventory. And, and you know, this is really going to start to hurt. So uh, he's, he's paying, 
He's paying a lot more for it if he can get his hands on it. And ultimately, he says, look, I'm going to have to pass that off onto the customer. So I think there's just lots of examples like that where, uh, you know, just kind of name your name your product and it's in short supply. Well, it's sort of this perfect confluence of events, as you and our colleagues point out in the piece. It's it's the freak accident in the Suez Canal. It's drought wreaking havoc upon agricultural crops, a deep freeze and mass blackout, wiping out energy and petrochemical operations in the U.S., not to mention what happened with the pipeline just last week. Talk to us a little bit about expectations for how long this crunch is going to last, because you and your colleagues write about something that's known as the Logistics Managers Index. What is that and what does it tell us? Right. So, you know, if you listen to what Fed officials say, they say, well, this is this inflation is, is transitory. Well, that, what does that mean? Does that mean it, it's gone in three months or does that mean it's, it's here for the next couple of years? So if you if you listen to people who who are in the logistics industry, that is transportation, warehousing, kind of moving products from from production to, uh, you know, to the consumer, you know, they're, they're looking at, at the tightness all around them and saying that this isn't going to this is not you know, transitory in a three to six month kind of way. This is this is more something that's going to be with us. The, the logistics manager index that's cited in the story is is a survey. Uh, you know, like a lot of other surveys uh, econo- that produce economic data. This one particularly asks, you know, where where are your transportation costs going to be twelve months from now? And the survey overwhelmingly shows that co- those costs are going to be. Uh, higher if, uh, you know, the same or higher 12 months from now. So uh, these are shipping costs, truck, trucking, uh, you know, basic delivery costs. You know, we're all going and buying stuff on Amazon and, and you know, there are surcharges for, for delivery fees and, and delivery fees and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, across the board, you know, it's it seems that uh, if it is transitory, you know, it's more of the one to two year kind of uh, uh, time frame rather than just, you know, a couple of months. Uh, sort of an episode. Well, Brendan, that's what I wanted to ask you. And just got about 30 seconds, you know, any conclusive takeaway about is it transitory or is it just, listen, the economy coming back faster uh, than and bigger than we all thought? Yeah, I, I think transitory, if, if we're talking, you know, a year or two, maybe three, you know, that you can, uh, you know, the, the, the world needs uh, container ships right now, but you can't, you know, it takes two to three years to build a container ship. So you, so the capacity is going to take some time. And I think it's going to take some time for, right. for us to work through this. Two to three years doesn't feel transitory. Transitory is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. <laughs> build those container ships. <laughs> Brennan Murray, uh, it's a great story. And it's the Bloomberg big take. It's also the big crunch, as we call it on the Bloomberg. Trades are Bloomberg News on the phone from London. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, so bouncing around a little bit, but uh, really down for the day here. We're off our worst levels of the session, uh, as you just heard from Charlie. Let's get to the drive to the close. Back with us, Alan Zafrin, founding partner, co-CEO at IEQ Capital, once again on the phone from Foster City, California. This is one of those days where I'm scratching my head a little bit, Alan. What do you make of the trade? 
Uh, Carol, great to be on again. What I make of the trade is this market is churning. Well, take, put it in context. <laughs> We've been up so much since the bottom a year ago. And so we're looking for any excuse we can find. It could be inflation. It could be tweets from Elon Musk. It could be anything in between. We need a little bit of profit taking. We need people just to calm down a little bit. And markets don't just don't go up forever. So I, this is just the natural churning of markets. It, it can't be as easy as it was to make money in the last 12 months. This is just noise. That's really what I make of it. Nothing more than noise. So how do you how do you make money in a market that's full of noise like this? You stay with your long-term perspective. You recognize that historically stocks go up about 10% per year. And as one of uh, my colleagues said, pain is the price of being in the stock market. You're going to get days and weeks when you're down. If you don't put too many eggs in any one basket and make sure you have enough cash on the sidelines for rainy days and emergencies, you can have a long-term perspective. Oh, you make it sound so easy. You make it sound so <laughs> well, easy, Alan. Well, I don't, well isn't it I also... Were. Yeah, but also thank you index funds. I mean, that don't yeah. you think the amount of money that has gone into index funds and basically buying the market has created kind of a certain level of calm within the market that even when there's some selling, Alan, you can kind of see a play out. It pulls back a little bit and then everybody comes right back in. Yeah, you see that? That's part of it. And I think part of it is, again, thanks to the Fed and everyone else, cash is trash. You don't make any money and bond yields are deplorable. They really don't keep up with inflation. So if you're really a long-term saver, sitting in public cash and public bonds isn't going to uh, build a big nest egg. And so that's why I think money inevitably flows back into stocks. The alternatives just are not attractive. Tina, there is no, there is no alternative. Don't yeah. say it. You've done it. You've done it. That's the cult of equities we've been living in for all. But, you know, uh, uh, so let's take this a different way. One of the arguments is stocks are overvalued. So maybe we're trading at, I'm picking a number, 22 times forward earnings. And if you look in the last 25 years, it's only about 16 times forward earnings. Wow, we're way overvalued. But then you have to say to yourself two things. One is 25 years ago and along the way, interest rates were a lot higher than they are today. So stocks are relatively more attractive. And the other thing is the stock from 25 years ago were ExxonMobil and they were uh, General Motors and AT&T, these capital-intensive businesses with lousy profit margins. Today, it's Apple, it's Google, it's Facebook, uh, and those margins on those businesses are better. And so you should probably be paying a somewhat higher multiple than what you did 20 to 25 mm -hmm. years ago. Maybe, maybe not as high as it is, but certainly it doesn't mean it has to go back to what it was. So I think we have a fallacy of thinking the old days have to repeat entirely. So I think there's justification for where stocks are. Sure, you're going to get crazy swings of up and down, but I don't think stocks are as grossly or even nearly overvalued as some of the bears would tell you. I, I don't see that at all. I think mm -hmm. it makes complete sense given where we are with the interest rate environment, where we are with the relatively low inflation environment, despite the recent surge. Stocks still make a lot of sense for a long-term investor. So, Alan, don't want to go back to something you said about fixed income. Is there any place for fixed income in a diversified portfolio right now for long-term investor? Oh, ab absolutely, for, for three reasons. One is we don't really know where rates are headed. We know that they're a lot lower than wherever they were historically, but I could give you an argument we could turn into Japan. Yeah. And actually, only long-duration bonds make a lot of sense, too. At least the high-quality bonds really do have a negative correlation to stocks in the long run, so it diversifies you. And third, there's a lot of flavors of bonds. You certainly could buy senior floating rate bonds that keep up with inflation. There are elements of high-yield bonds. If you buy enough of them, even if there are some defaults, probably the 
excess income you earn relative to a treasury makes up for some of the losses along the way. So there's there's absolutely room for fixed income. But the reality is you basically count on the yield you're going to earn when you buy. And right now that yield is pretty darn low. So it's not really terribly compelling. It's a good diversifier, but it's going to be hard to build a retirement nest egg on public fixed income today. There's just not enough return. Hey, what about retail? Uh, it is up Mm, just shy of 10% as a whole. If I'm looking at the S&P Super Composite Retailing Industry Group, it's up almost 48% from 52 weeks ago. We're going to hear from a lot of big names in the retail space. How do you see retail? Are there opportunities there? Yeah, well, I think uh, this uh, COVID has only accelerated the separation of the rich and the poor. So I think luxury retail is actually quite compelling, as it always has been, because I think people coming out of this pandemic are going to want to spend, and those that benefit financially benefited will be able to have the wherewithal to actually spend. I would argue, though, that retail as a generalization is not an overwhelmingly compelling sector to mm. us, to me. And the reason is it's still heavily dependent on economic cycles. And I believe the economy, albeit being very robust this year, we're going to get back to where we were before COVID. It's going to be a, a plodding slow grinding economy and there's only going to be a handful of winners that really drive durable differentiation it's going to be a challenging sector once we get past this near-term sugar high from all the uh, fiscal and monetary stimulus we've had why will it be challenging uh because we got to go back to the basics our economy before covid if you recall was grinding slowly 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 we have an aging population People that age don't spend as much. Look at Japan or Europe. Mm -hmm. We have technologies pushing down all forms of inflation pressures, and you have a growing debt load. That growing debt load is going to ultimately uh, slow down the pace at which we we invest and we spend. The government debt load slows down the ability of this economy to grow. And servicing that debt is going to slow it down, and taxing the rich is going to also slow down economic growth. So however you cut it, Once we get past these next six to 12 months, we're going to go back into a slow grinding economy again. Do you think it'll only take, I mean, and I say only, you think it'll only take six to 12 months for that to happen? Yeah, depending on how much you want to push the Fed's foot to the fire on fomenting inflation. The Fed is adamant about creating inflation because as bad as inflation is, deflation is worse. If I say, here's a pen, I'll sell it to you for a dollar, and you say, I don't want to buy it, it's going to be dropped to 98 cents tomorrow. So I show up tomorrow and say, hey, you're right. Why don't you buy this pen at 98 cents? You say, well, I'm not going to buy it. Wait till it drops to 96 cents tomorrow. You'll never buy my pen. And so there's no economic growth. Deflation is terrible. And that's why the Fed is fomenting inflation. It's adamant we've got to kickstart this economy or we're going to become Japan. That's the alternative. You don't think uh, infrastructure spending might kickstart the uh, economy? It will. But uh, again, given we're going to go through a compromise, we're going to end up at a dollar amount that's going to be nice to stimulate some growth, but it's not going to be enough to change these long-term secular problematic slowing down economic forces, which is massive amounts of debt, higher taxes on the rich, and an aging population. All of those secular long-term forces are going to keep economic growth down and all things equal, inflationary pressures down. Therefore, you do have room to buy some bonds or fixed income in your portfolio, not just as a diversifier, but the reality is in the long run, interest rates are very unlikely to go up meaningfully like where they were, where they were 10 years ago. It's unlikely they'll get there. I wonder what that means for real estate. If, if interest rates stay so low, don't we just see real estate continue to climb higher and higher? And we only have about 30 seconds. You do, because you get a lot of income generation from the real estate, and you can do rent increases, which probably go at the faster pace, as faster as faster pace inflation. So we are 
uh, advocates of owning broadly diversified real estate as part of a well-diversified portfolio. All right, we're going to leave it on that. No, good stuff. Covered a lot of ground, as we always do with Alan Zafrin. He's founding partner, co-CEO at IEQ Capital, on the phone from Foster City, California. Uh, It's an interesting day. He gave us a lot to to think about, uh, whether it's thinking about, you know, historically, stocks do gain 10% a year if we look at it. We've certainly (laughs) seen, you know, that play out for a long time. So it's something to think about. It is. You know, keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. It's like the way he explained it. It's, it's just so logical. The trend is your friend. Are you going to go there? Just set it and forget it. <laughs> oh, my God. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.